Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Manderville, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing one of McGill's PhD students, Patrick Slack, who is beginning the PhD process under the supervision of McGill's Geography Department and Professor Sarah Turner. Patrick obtained a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture from Purdue University in Indiana and thereafter received his master's degree in Geography from McGill University. Patrick is a development geographer studying agrarian change in upland rural landscapes. During his master's, he focused on the role that black cardamom plays in upland ethnic minority semi-subsistence livelihoods in the Sino-Vietnamese borderlands. Black cardamom, a medicinal and culinary non-timber forest product, is cultivated in some of the highlands in the Southeast Asian Massif. While black cardamom was previously touted as a sustainable rural development livelihood strategy, recently it's been under threat of extreme weather events which have decimated harvests and increased regulations of forests as deemed necessary by centralized governments. His PhD research advances this research that he conducted during his master's, and the ethnographic study he intends to produce throughout his doctoral degree will be the first to explore how borderland ethnic minority farmers in upland northern Vietnam have navigated modernity, catalyzed by French colonial authorities and state interventionism over the past century. So today, Patrick will be discussing his ongoing PhD research in North Vietnam's borderlands and the changes in livelihoods and upland, of upland ethnic minority farmers he will also be delving into the details of his forthcoming chapter, Cardamom Livelihoods and Cardamom Diversification Stresses in Vietnam's Northern Borderlands, uh, which is to be published in the book Fragrant Frontier, Global Spice Entanglements from the Sino-Vietnamese Uplands. So without further ado, Patrick, it's so nice to have you with us this morning. Thank you for joining us, and I'm excited to hear about your work. Thanks so much for having me. Let's just start off. Do you maybe mind just in introducing your doctoral proposal and research the research on black cardamom for our listeners. How did you get inspired to work in this area of the world and with this specific crop? And maybe just delve into what you intend to research throughout your PhD. Absolutely. Um, so I'll just start with my doctoral research and then probably scale back and then tie it all back together. Um, so my doctoral research is examining how livelihoods in upper northern Vietnam have changed since the late 1800s. Um, when colonial French colonial authorities uh, recorded in detailed reports uh, along the border. And prior to this, there's really no history um, or any written accounts of at all. Um, so this is basically like a really rich temporal um, snapshot of what livelihoods and uh, governance were, um, in addition to agriculture and economies. Um, and so within my focus, I'm looking at two specific districts um, that are adjacent to one another on the Sino-Vietnamese border. And I'm using this as a comparison, sort of narrow my scope rather than just looking at all three uplands, which is a, a huge project. Um, and so this region is a part of the large mountain range spanning across a lot of Southeast Asia called the Southeast Asian Sea, which is considered to be 500 meters in elevation. And it's this incredibly diverse social and physical space where over the past several centuries, Ethnic minorities have essentially fled from um, ethnic majority state making endeavors, trying to incorporate them into feudal systems of stable crop production and for, say, uh, military purposes. And so as a result, they've sort of been politically, economically and socially attempted to be integrated, but have fled into mountains where 
things are a little bit more on their own terms. So like, for example, Vietnam has a total of 53 ethnic minority groups um, and 49 of them live in the islands. So it really is a sort of refuge for these groups. So over the past 100 years, of course, across the world, there's been a lot of change, but especially in this area, um, they've navigated French colonial rule, independence from French colonial rule uh, through the first Indochina War, the second Indochina War, and as in Vietnam, they call it the American War. Um, they've navigated collectivization, the Sino Vietnamese border war, decollectivization, economic renovation policies, and then you tack, in, tack on their sort of um, global process, the introduction of technologies, social restructuring, globalization, capitalism. So there's been significant changes. If I could boil it down, my doctoral research looks at what upland ethnic minority semi subsistence livelihoods were like at the time of colonial intervention, how have they changed and why. And then adding one more dimension to it, how uh, provincial and district policies are impacting local ethnic minority livelihoods between two districts that are environmentally, demographically, and um, geographically similar. So I'm looking at interventions across time and localized uh, sort of state actors and policies and livelihoods and how they all interrelate to one another. Tying it back to like my previous experience and my master's, um, it began with my interest in environmental policy and science, which ultimately led me to focus on agriculture. And I got interested in this region. I did a semester overseas in Thailand and Cambodia and followed that with an internship um, where I was in, uh, where I interned with the Wildlife Conservation Society in Laos. And um, I helped out working at a protected area and on an ecotourism project with a lot of ethnic minorities in the Northeastern region. So not too far from where I'm, I'm doing my work now. And so the more I studied environmental conservation intervention, the more I realized that food security was an ethical and essential first step in actually protecting natural resources. And there's a bit of a conundrum there. Um, you know, they're inextricably connected and often uh, communities are sort of neglected out of, out of the say of these sort of natural resource um, interventions. So from there, I focused on food security and agriculture. Um, I worked on a few development projects, worked for a conservation agriculture nonprofit um, in North America, and then I pursued my master's degree. And um, after a lot of searching, I found what Professor Sarah Turner does and reached out to work with her. And black cardamom proved to be a really interesting livelihood option that both had food security and conservation, uh, conservation like uh, components to it. Uh, so tying my master's work back into my PhD, black cardamom is the main livelihood activity for Highland ethnic minorities in, in the region. Um, and this is sort of a shift from just an intergenerational change, which is what I focus on in my, my master's on the, like with a focus on this specific commodity. But now I'm looking at 120 years of change in this one specific region. Awesome. Well, that sounds super interesting. I'm excited to learn more about it. Um, so keep the IOD updated on the process as it develops. Sure. Moving on to our second question. So referring to your forthcoming chapter, Cardamom Livelihoods and Livelihood Diversification, which I had mentioned in the intro and which focuses on the Lao Cai province of northern Vietnam. Can you maybe explain the social landscape of this province? What are the different ethnicities that dwell in the region? What are their relationships with one another? How are they treated by the local and central government? And how do these treatments differ from the treatment of, I suppose, the Buddhist majority of northern Vietnam? I guess, moreover, as you intend to also focus on the west adjacent province of Lai Chau uh, during your PhD, 
what is the social, cultural, and political predicament of the ethnic minorities that dwell in this province as well? Yeah, of course. So out of the 53 ethnic minorities, this was all classified by state ethnologists, which is sort of controversial, but for simplicity's sake, uh, about 49%, or sorry, 49 ethnic groups reside in the highlands of Vietnam, and specifically in Lao Cai, 14 ethnic groups live there. Within Vatat district, the district that I work in for my master's and the one I'm going to continue to work in for my PhD, the Yao, Mong, and Hani ethnic groups are the ones that cultivate black cardamom and are the ones that I predominantly work with. Um, there are the Dai, uh, which are typically Akamara's traders and inter, uh, intermediaries uh, between highland and lower areas. And then in um, Hongzhou district in uh, Lai Chao province, where uh, the comparative district is going to be, um, they have similar demographics of Yao, Mong, and Hani uh, farmers, um, except for the Zai. They're replaced by ethnic minority Thai, which they're sort of close relatives, um, but they also operate in a sort of similar capacity as intermediaries and traders. Um, so like looking at uh, state and sort of ethnic minority relations, um, it's sort of predicated on what French colonial authorities um, Sort of perceived them to be. So French colonial authorities and the Vietnamese state currently historically have perceived ethnic minority farmers as being backwards and uncivilized and um, other connotations that are really just racist. Um, so among other beliefs, the state has a really sort of centralized and top-down um, imposing of development policies that are all sort of based on enlightenment thinking with modernization and progress as these sort of ideal endpoints and that everyone should, you know, progress on the unilinear path. Um, and so it started with the French from colonization where they essentially categorized all these um, minority groups and regions, the same sort of archives that I'll be working with, and uh, was also borrowed from Soviet ethnologists in a show of socialist solidarity with the um, socialist regime in, in Vietnam at the time. And so as a result of these hierarchical sort of uh, conceptualizations, government approaches concerning rural highland areas and inhabitants remain uh, rooted in these sort of evolutionary racist development trajectories with ethnic minorities being regarded as the sort of least involved. And this isn't to say that all government officials or all ethnic majority king people believe this to be the case, but it is very front and center in uh, policy discourse and rhetoric. And so I guess taking a step back, the ethnic majority king comprise over 85% of the country's population. Like, so the king are a Buddhist majority and comparing king and ethnic minority relations with the state, the king are culturally, economically, and politically significantly more integrated into the centralized um, and also sort of cascading levels of government. Um, so basically there are quite a bit of asymmetrical power relations at play here and it complicates interventions in, in the highlands. And provides a lot of advantages for king farmers that are essentially up there but doing very different things than what the ethnic minority uh, groups that I'm working with are, are doing. What you were saying about the the highlands, I mean when I was doing a lot of research on um, south, southern Vietnam kind of during the Vietnam War, American War period, it was really interesting hearing kind of the security measures that were introduced to the Central Highland people 
um, and how their whole kind of way of protecting that area was ensuring that these people were under the most control possible. And it was always about control. It's like they didn't want to give them the freedom to figure out how to develop the areas at their at their own pace with their own devices. It's just like this oppressive way of managing these people. Um, and I mean, you know, as Archisman and I are both living in Canada right now, you know, it's not very different from the way that a lot of countries handle their indigenous oh. groups, if we're being honest. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of like this internal colonization, right? Um, For sure. And and I mean, and I guess similar to the extent in Canada and also like in Central Highlands and also in Northern Vietnam or really any sort of borderland region, it's been the focus of a lot of interventions because these areas want to be secure or securitized. And these, I mean, they're peripheral, right? Like they're closer to another state than they are to their own central government. Yeah. So there's a lot of complexities that you want to tease out in terms of um, why is the state focusing on these borderland regions and not other ones? And, you know, exactly. sort of looking at incorporating these populations and uh, any sort of project to like sedentarize or quote unquote stabilize. For sure. I know. So moving on to the next question, because I feel like we could just talk about that all day. Um, <laughs> so you describe black cardamom throughout your paper as a crop that's cultivation and trade has I guess, permitted a certain level of independence, stability, and self-determination among those who farm and cultivate it, uh, especially prior to the climactic instabilities that have negatively affected cardamom since like the 2010s and onward. Despite both political and environmental impediments to the success of cardamom cultivation, and I guess the instabilities uh, in terms of crop yields, uh, why do you think and why does cardamom continue to be relied upon as a main as a main means of progressive diversification? Did you see any glimpses of certain crops or products that uh, you could see overpassing the importance of cardamom, uh, depending on how the environment and how the politics of the area develop? If you could just talk about that. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so um, I guess just add extreme weather events to the like other components that are just contributing to whiplash um, to this one sort of region. Um, I should probably dive into this in the cardamom aspect a little bit more. So until the early 1990s, farmer, farmers have basically historically grown rice, corn, and cassava in swiddening plots, so slash and burn or shifting cultivation, um, which is a method by which farmers cut vegetation, let it dry, burn it and then creates a nutrient dense uh, layer of soil and so over years the soil quality declines um, and farmers repeat the cycle in either the same or new places um, historically farmers have used uh, land race varieties of um, these crops so it's like a local cultivar maintained by traditional breeding meaning that they collect and replant the rice in corn and cassava um, so this is different from say hybrid seeds where things where they must be bought yearly aside from like stable crop production farmers also raise livestock and cultivate horticultural crops for human consumption um, and then non timber forest products are a huge part of uh, their livelihoods uh, one of them being uh, black cardamom um, and that's either for for consumption or for trade um, so over the past 120 years a main source of or rather uh, 100 years, but uh, a main source of income for many upland farmers in, in northern Vietnam relied on opium cultivation, 
um, and the collection of a type of cypress tree used for coffins. And so around the same time um, in the early 1990s, uh, both of these uh, were banned um, for cultivation of and collection of these were banned and uh, swimming agriculture was also banned. So it really sort of uh, narrowed and limited uh, what a lot of livelihood activities were um, for a lot of these farmers. So at the same time, then you have the introduction of hybrid seed. So you have all of these commodities that produced a lot of uh, cash production for uh, farmers and also that are now being restricted and then also have a huge cash demand. And so all of a sudden, farmers turn to black cardamom. Um, and so that's because of um, farmers previously harving, harvesting small amounts for medicinal use. So traditional ecological knowledge is present there. Um, it also came at a time when the price was uh, rising uh, across the border in Yunnan. So cardamom is preferred for a lot of reasons. Plots are close to home, stable prices, trusted markets, and it's also um, complementary to labor uh, calendar activity to just rice harvests, rice plantings, and things like that. Um, so in the mid-1990s, cardamom sort of uh, provided a huge proportion of, of uh, household needs for cash. Um, and some farmers were, you know, even rich enough to purchase cars for their for their households. But as of 2008, extreme weather events became more common: drought, flooding, um, extreme heat, extreme cold, and instances of heavy snowfall, which have just become more common and prevalent. Um, in addition to landslides, and cold is um, incredibly destructive. Cardamom. Um, taking three or five, three to five years to sort of recuperate from these, these sort of freezing events. So all of the farmers that I interviewed essentially noted that beginning in 2015 and 2016, which is when the most severe snowfall came along, uh, their crop harvest returned to less than one third of their regular yields and many experiencing um, com complete crop failures. And by the time it was uh, 2017, 62% of, of the farmers that I interviewed had complete crop failures. So that's a huge loss of income while previously other sort of commodities were banned. So it really left very few options. So the so the government basically in Laokai was essentially uh, supportive of cardamom until 2013. And then they decided to curb it and try to cut uh, cardamom generation or cardamom cultivation rather. Um, so uh, there's also a new nature reserve that was established in Batsad district where I did my master's and they banned the expansion of cultivation plots. They've said that they were going to ban cultivation altogether, but we'll see. So like weather complications, government policy compli complications, despite all that, farmers are still preferring this livelihood option as it's really lucrative and safe. It keeps people clo close to their home. The government has tried to introduce a lot of substitute crops that are all sort of medicinal uh, varieties, but also fruit trees and timber trees and uh, trout. These are sort of like the new commodities that are coming about, but uh, wage labor has also surged with carbon crop, crop failures and it has had mixed impacts. Some people have found a lot of success in it. Other people have found a lot of hardship in it. It can be really physically demanding. Companies don't pay people and people go often go across the border to Yunnan since it's so close. And so much of this wage labor migration to China is illegal and farmers are often afraid of the sort of legal implications that they can be put in. Their well-being is threatened 
and um, there have been accounts of human trafficking with people never returning home. So these chromatic factors are having really tragic, um, devastating, and, and troublesome outcomes that go far beyond just, just livelihoods, but overall human life. Well, on that sad note, I suppose we're going to move to our next question. Um, my next question was kind of about, um, I guess, centralized governments and the policies that they've been implementing and that impact on, um, I guess, cardamom farming and cardamom farmers and in general, the people of the Upper Highlands or the people of the Highlands and uh, Laokai. Um, do you feel like you spoke enough to this? Do you have more to add or do you want me to add then go on to the next question? So, I mean, I, and I guess it, it is linked to a lot of what I was saying before about sort of the, the uh, prejudice with develop, top-down development interventions. Um, but like, for example, some of the interventions like agricultural intensification, modernization, ecological restoration, all of these approaches are basically done with a government knows best mentality. So there, there really is no consideration of local context or communities in, in most regards. On the ground realities of, of um, upland farmers and landscapes, it's totally different than, than lowland areas. Um, so there's this large amount of dissonance between what the state wants and what upland farmers want. Um, and there have been numerous development, development failures um, in the uplands, and not just by state agencies, but also nonprofit organizations. And um, numerous commodity programs uh, are known to like flood markets and drive price cuts for like fruit trees, for example. Um, neighboring South Pod District has had explosive tourism development, um, leading to exorbitant amounts of capital flowing into the district and leaving a lot of ethnic minorities behind. Um, reforestation and afforestation programs have basically upheaved uh, like traditional land use rights um, and banning food and agriculture and forcing households to centerize at one location has all sort of um, bottlenecked a lot of these, these previous uh, livelihoods. So the new crops and commodities that I just spoke about are untested and built on new markets and they require significant agricultural extension services and trust with markets and retailers. but. Um, in my specific study site, uh, both of these have failed. Um, state agricultural extension officers have kind of dropped the ball quite a bit. And um, markets, or pe people don't trust the markets and therefore are sort of choosing not to grow um, a lot of these. Yeah, I, I guess in, in many ways, like the Vietnamese state sort of views these borderlands and ethnic literaries as others and a need of integration and incorporation into the nation state, sort of like what we were talking about with the, the borderland. Uh, territorialization, which is like the incorporation or reorganization of requested commodities. So yeah, it, it, it could be argued. I'm, I'm not going, I'm not this pessimistic, but it could be argued that these interventions is some sort of incorporation um, of these regions um, or peripheral state subjects. I think that there is genuine interest in the state wanting to help farmers, but I think that it may be an outcome um, that they still appreciate of, of sort of integrating uh, these groups. But at the core of it, there's this lack of consideration for cultural values and um, local sort of context. So, so in many ways, the Vietnamese state um, sort of has this unilinear and deterministic modernization and economic development uh, model. And social science have been basically screaming into the, <laughs> the academic void and, and development practitioner void, trying to get people to emphasize the need for local cultural um, and socioeconomic context, but little if ever are they heated. And that's why I think that this study is so important is that 
studying interventions in this one specific region is so vital to, propose, to proposing sort of beneficial uh, development interventions. And, you know, this is essentially as far back as you can get um, in terms of records of um, semi-subsistence farmers and transitions and changes in government. So I hope that it might inform future interventions along with other sort of interventions along the border within reason, of course, because it is so, so different um, in this mosaic sort of way. It, it is just, it is just incredibly diverse there. So hopefully that it can at least inform development approaches across the, the region. For sure, yeah. <clears throat> and you have to think about how difficult it is to take into consideration such a diverse, as you said, mosaic of cultures and beliefs mm -hmm. and interests. I feel like in certain situations, a lot of it is ignorance. Ignorance and I suppose um, being put, like placing the borderlands and placing regions that are filled with multiple ethnic minorities or multiple ethnic groups um, lower on the hierarchy of importance due to their lesser, I suppose, political influence in the country. The next question I'm gonna ask you is, um, so throughout the paper that I read of yours, your forthcoming chapter, uh, you briefly discuss the gender roles which come into play in the growth of cardamom. Uh, for example, in line with patrilineal land practices of Hmong and Yao and Hani people, uh, you state that cardamom land is most commonly divided and transferred to sons upon marriage. And there are also other kinds of power dynamics that you mention in terms of cardamom growth and I guess child rearing and ceremonial practices and the role of the man versus the woman. And moreover, I mean, when I visited Sapa and Hajang, et cetera, it, it was quite prominent that there are gender roles in place and they're a lot more obvious than, I guess, more centralized areas of the state. At least that's what I found. Maybe it's just because I was interacting more with the people as opposed to the historical sites, I would say. But anyways, so despite the power dynamics of these um patriarchally inclined cultures, you state that only nine out of 50 Hmong people that you interviewed were women, uh, I guess, compared to the more equal qualitative data collected that was collected from the Yao people, of which 38 out of 73 people that were interviewed were women, and Hani people, of which seven out of 16 of whom were interviewed were women. Uh, so why was the comparative statistic of Hmong women interviewed so much smaller than those of Hani and Yao people? Um, how did the information vary between female and male cardamom cultivators of, I guess, all three minorities or all three ethnicities? And what was noticeable in the comparison of their experiences? Um, and I guess just in general, if you could just talk about how gender roles impact the general experience of being an ethnic minority um, or being subjugated, I suppose, in the area. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. I, I in all honesty, gender gendered livelihoods could be a PhD study all in, it, all in and of itself. Um, and um, I would probably like uh, lead readers to read some of what uh, Professor Sarah Turner has, has written and also um, one of her former students, Christine Bonin, uh, B-O-I-N-N-I-N, um, in terms of um, gender relations, uh, especially um, within Maokai products. Um, but I guess going back to the sort of Papalino question, so Papalino land division is a common practice for all um, groups that I was working with. And so that isn't always the case. There are instances of people breaking tradition depending on what their sort of economic contexts are 
um, how much they adhere to, to that sort of uh, practice. Um, but your sampling question is a great one, and it's contingent upon both cultural, social um, sort of considerations, and also um, regarding my methodology. Um, so the way that it was best for me to work was to sort of have conversational interviews with people at markets. That was the best way where people were sort of open for some, you know, foreigner and uh, his interpreter from Hanoi to come up and um, start asking random questions about their life where, you know, people were very, um, <laughs> why, you know, curious as to why I would be asking a bunch of questions about cardamom and, and, and all that. Um, so that was the sort of main way that I made contacts with markets. And then eventually I would try to follow up and do more sort of intimate, like semi-structured interviews where I could delve a little bit deeper than just sort of talking about brief um, concepts. So men are typically, at least Hmong men are typically um, the ones that sell goods at markets. So there's, this is a, a gender division of labor here. So rarely women, rarely do women come to the market um, or Hmong women come to the market, but um, there's also the language consideration here, which is mostly Yao Hmong and Hani men are typically more fluent in Vietnamese. Um, so many of the Hmong women that I did attempt to speak to, to sort of understand what their cardamom livelihood were like, were unable to um, communicate. Um, there, there's a number of reasons that you could sort of attribute to this, but the large one is being that economic relations or trade is essentially, or usually done by men. Um, and so there is that sort of uh, language component and fluency there. But regarding some of like you, you mentioned that I talked to a lot more Yao farmers. They have a history of becoming more integrated into markets and state, just sort of having a more flexible and adaptive sort of culture compared to the Hmong and Hani who tend to be a bit more resistant. Um, and I just want to caveat this that this is what I've interpreted in my field work and may totally be contested in other parts of the borderland, uh, the borderlands there. But but that's just sort of what I've seen. And in terms of interviewing difference sort of like different information at play between men and women i would say there wasn't too much of a difference when it came to that but slightly more women referred to the importance that cardamom had to their family whereas men focused more on the material sort of outcomes of, of cardamom cultivation so you know talking about uh homes motorbikes uh paying for medical procedures and i mean i i think that this is indicative of, of a lot of the sort of um data out there for women always looking after the home and children um, having you know investment in family in their family being front and center whereas men you know are typically gambling or uh, drinking or spending on cigarettes it's just it's just sort of a, a trend across the global south and global north and, it, and it's not all that different here but briefly just to sort of pick apart the gender division of labor women mostly tended to household needs such as preparing food taking care of home gardens um, collecting firewood, things like that, while men typically conducted more uh, physically demanding work, such as uh, plowing rice fields with buffalo, conducting wage labor, leading the rituals for respective households. So those are sort of like the main things that, that I would sort of tease apart, but also for the really labor-intensive projects, such as rice harvesting and planting, cardamom cultivation, and in sort of uh, terms of like weeding and harvesting, it's an all hands on deck sort of a thing. So if they need hands, they will bring women along, but typically carbon forests are really rugged. It's tough, you know, like you don't come back home at the end of the day, you stay there for weeks. 
So I'm just, I guess I'm just curious about what the women were saying about what cardamom has done to contribute to their families, like how they would speak about it. Hmm. I had this one conversation uh, with a young woman who told me that black cardamom was forever. And I thought that we were just talking about longevity of plants. But I think the more that I sat on it, I thought more about how it really has sort of become embedded in um, in livelihoods to the point that uh, it's hard to imagine a lucrative future without it. Um, women often said, you know, that they were helping to pay for education, or um, or yeah, healthcare was a was a big thing as well, and also just sort of speaking about like cardamom assisted. The family in this, whereas men said like, "Oh, I paid for this." So just sort of like maybe a, a bit more subjectivity, but also a, a bit more illustrative rather than just a income outcome. But that could also—I mean, who, who knows? That also could just be the the people that I spoke to as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for answering that. That was more yeah. for my personal interest yeah. than uh, the podcast. But <clears throat> so moving on to our final question. In 2020, reports have been released of extreme climactic variations and weather patterns becoming the new normal um, in central Vietnam and also in multiple other parts of the world. A similar predicament to the climactic anomalies, which began impeding with cardamom growth uh, in Lao Cai province, I guess started in the 2010s, as we mentioned earlier. As the national government, I suppose, continues to look inwardly during the COVID-19 pandemic, and as the pandemic's impact on tourism and national health in Southeast Asia or uh, the health of each nation in Southeast Asia, I guess, continues to devastate the economy, how do you envision adaptations of local communities to have shifted since you collected your data in 2018? Do you believe that cardamom has perhaps become more commonly cultivated during this period to make up for lost profits? Or do you think that that the government will have been more intense in implementing the cardamom ban uh, due to isolationist politics? Um, What have you heard? What do you anticipate? And I guess, what do you hope for? This is a tough question. (laughs) This is a a hard one. Um, So I'm afraid that that these extreme weather events aren't aren't really going to go away anytime soon. Um, And so are the research participants that I work with. Um, There have been landslides and flooding since I did my field work, in, um, and it, it, it's just troublesome, um, and even more troublesome for them, given that you know their subsistence is, is based off of these natural resources and, and weather events. Um, it's just they live a completely different life than, than a lot of us do. When it comes to uh, carbon cultivation, their isolationism or isolationist policies, it, it's this is this is hard. Um, I think farmers are now even more skeptical of dependency on different markets, but there's also this increased desperation for um, more secure livelihoods and you know enhanced well-being. Everyone wants to do better than than they did the previous year or previous day. Um, so there's there's this negotiation that is constantly being played out between engaging with these uncertain things and also or in uncertain livelihood activities and also uh, sort of self-preservation. Um, I would say that research participants remain eager for trading opportunities. So like um, a lot of people that I'm still in contact with uh, are distilling alcohol and selling that for trade in the lowlands, lots of terror production. Um, but those that are sort of 
engage with tourism are um, desperate for visitors to return. Um, right now, today, what, today is August 4th, um, much of the country is in, in lockdown. Um, they have the worst uptick of COVID cases since the very beginning. Um, Vietnam has handled it quite well, but now it, it's um, quite desperate. Um, and you know, low vaccination rates are, are present there. It depends upon the weather. Um, it takes about seven years to begin fruiting once you plant it. So it, it, it has this lag time. Um, and, and I think, like I mentioned earlier, you know, three to five years to recover from takes three to five years to recover from a, an extreme cold event. So there's a huge lag time here. I'm uncertain on, on whether or not income has been made up or if yields are still catching up, but a lot of people have just sought after other sort of livelihood activities like wage labor and some of these medicinal crops. Um, but from what I've seen, harvests have been relatively normal the past couple of years. But again, like this could just be set back by, by one event. Um, I anticipate that the government is going to continue to curb black cardamom cultivation and attempt to incentivize farmers by into more preferable sort of livelihoods like silviculture, uh, tourism, other cash crops that are feeding into sort of medicinal companies that are um, exploring these options up north. And so, you know, cardamom is grown under a forest canopy. There's no real way to measure it. Um, there's no real, real way to measure yields, incomes, and I mean, if we're to look at it from a state's gaze, there's a lot of money to be made from that. And so at the same time, uh, the state wants to sort of modernize and develop these sort of borderline regions and produce commodities that they can export and their economy would benefit from. But that leaves farmers in quite a predicament in terms of transitioning arable land that they would use for food production and instead growing cash crops. So what happens if the market is unstable? What happens if an extreme weather event um, devastates yields? Or you know, what if a eventual livelihood activity is banned? Um, at the end of the day, farmers want security to be able to feed their families, to live a healthy life, and new strategies that they try out need to accommodate their their local cultural needs, their their labor calendars, and essentially at the end of the day, there has to be trust um, in these markets and these commodities. So. It's really tough to anticipate exactly what will happen, but in the past, development programs in the region have been kind of disorganized and have a hodgepodge of overlapping, incongruent, conflicting sort of. I think I just want to tie that tie back in like my doctoral work, and that I I just want to help inform how some of these may be trusted more, how they may be more in line with local contexts, um, and how the state can approach development differently. But also sitting with the fact that if they wanted to do it differently, they could, and they haven't thus far. So I think it's going to take a lot of pushing. Um, I don't think that I'm going to be able to be a, a single agent of change, but I hope that I can work with others to help change local local sort of uh, approaches to development. Yeah, very well said. It's definitely a collaborative effort. Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, that's actually all the time we have today. We look forward to seeing your forthcoming publication and reading more about your research to come. And thank you to our listeners for downloading, tuning in, and supporting us. I'll also say that if any of our listeners are PhD or graduate students who believe that their work is relevant to the Indian Ocean World Center and our appraising risk project, and would like to perhaps showcase their work on our podcast, similar to as Patrick has just done, please contact us. Our email can be found at the Indian Ocean World Center website. 
Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. The Indian Ocean World Podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.